I hope it'll actually be a fairly a, a fairly simple, if not easy, thing that we're doing today. And if you want to be turning to Luke 16, um, I actually think it's going to be kind of fun. And that, for some of you, that may think you mean you're going to finish early and we're going to pray and get out of here. But um, it's it's kind of fun because if your experience is like mine, in Luke 16, we're going to be reading a parable that you've probably read over and over again. And maybe never really thought much about, because this parable is weird. This parable doesn't make any sense at all at first, and yet, until Larry asked me to teach some uh, a couple of the parables, and actually I wasn't even intending to teach this one, I was intending to teach the one that follows it. If you remember Lazarus uh, and the rich man, that story, I was going to do that one, and I just decided to read the whole chapter And I have read this over and over again and never had to think about it. And as I read it carefully, I thought, this is crazy. What is going on here? So hopefully, I I think that kind of stuff is kind of fun. Like, what's going on with something is kind of fun. So hopefully you'll find it fun too. Um, And uh, it's one of those circumstances when actually going and seeing what other people have said doesn't really help a whole lot either. Because if you go read what other people said about this, there's not much agreement on it, and some of what they say is kind of bizarre. So let's let's start off. Let's read the text. I'll talk through a couple of things. If you do like me and go do some study on what other people have said about this parable, um, you'll probably find some weird messages. I'll tell you what I, I think my half-thinking brain was thinking about it. And then we're going to see if we can't figure this out. And I think, I think we can figure it out in a way that's actually pretty meaningful not only to understand what's happening there with the audience Jesus is speaking to, but something that can work for us now as we look at the church today and something that can work for us as we look at our own lives. So let's pray, we'll read the text, and then we'll jump in here. Father, we pray that you will come and open our eyes this morning. You'll send your Holy Spirit, uh, that I will speak true words coming out of uh, coming out of your word that you've given to us and that, uh, that even where I fail, um, that you will turn... The, the, the listener's ears to what is true in your word, that we can be enriched, that we can be sent out from here, more fully understanding ourselves, what you've done for us and what you've called us to, and better equipped to bring that good news to those around us, those who know you and those who don't, uh, that they too can be redeemed by your great work in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. So we're starting right here at the beginning of Luke, Luke 16, Luke 16, verse 1. So here's Christ. He's He's been, in the narrative, it looks like these are continuous parables. It may or may not have been. Luke doesn't always tell us, you know, and then he stopped for the day, and then they had dinner, and then they came back the next day. But it, it seems we've got a sequence of parables there. And we have this one. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What? (laughs) So, let me get this straight. This manager has got a rich boss, and he's apparently been a dishonest manager because the boss comes and says, you're doing a terrible job. Maybe he hasn't been dishonest. Maybe he's only been incompetent so far, and he moves on to dishonesty. But he, he gets told, you're getting fired. Bring me all of your paperwork and turn it in. He's like, I better act fast. So real quick, before he goes and turns in his paperwork, he gets all of the people who owe the master money to come in and has them write down the amount that they owe so that they'll be indebted to him instead when he goes out from there. I mean, fair enough. We can hear that story and think, I understand this is going to be a parable about how awful people are. But then that's not what, that's not what happens here. First off, the manager says, well, that was pretty clever. And then Jesus says, so I tell you, it sounds like, do this kind of thing so that you can make friends for yourself with unrighteous wealth. What in the world is happening here? Well, so if you were to go read, and I'll I'll tell you, I think, because I don't remember having a clear thought of exactly what was happening here. I think what I would have taken from this is kind of just that little bit from the end. And if you go and you read, you'll find people dealing with just that part. What they basically say is, This is a strange parable, but what it's finally saying is money is neither here nor there. And so while you are here on this earth and have money, it's good to use it in ways that attract friends to the kingdom. Now, there are there are other people that will say, well, what this is telling you is that if you know bad things are happening, you should plan well for it. But there's an article on the Gospel Coalition that says that you go, well, we didn't plan well. He ripped off his boss. This isn't, that can't be what's going on here. But here is what's clear, because there are a number of things happening. This um, word shrewd, wisdom, providence, the, the manager is saying, wow, oh, that was clever. That was shrewd. The manager really does say that, but, or excuse me, the, the rich man really does say that. But the manager is called dishonest. And over and over again here, when there's talk of money, it's not just called money. It's called unrighteous money, because this is unrighteous money. This money was stolen. It's theft by deception. It wasn't taken out of the manager's pocket. But it was still stolen, because all of these people wrote these debts off, and now they owed this guy so that they would take care of him when he went out. So it seems really hard to make any of that praiseworthy. It's hard to imagine Jesus praising any of that. And yet, here we do, at the end have this statement in verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That eternal dwellings is good. I want to have that happen. So it seems like it ends with a blessing of making use of unrighteous wealth. What's happening here? This is really strange. Now, here's the funny thing about trying to figure out a parable that doesn't seem to make sense on its face. I think a bunch of people got it wrong, which means you have to acknowledge that I may be getting it wrong. 
I'm not acknowledging that. I'm just saying you, you should think that's possible. I might be getting it wrong too. This one's kind of weird. But what do we do when something in Scripture doesn't make sense to us? Well, one of them we've already talked about. We can look at what other people have tried to say to explain that. But hopefully what they're doing is actually where we should be starting. Is letting other Scripture interpret it. We've already done that a little bit here, right? We, we find it hard to believe that Christ would be applauding theft. Why do we find that hard to believe? Because we know what else Scripture teaches, and that's not what Jesus was like. We find it hard to believe that Jesus would be happy with somebody manipulating a system and gathering a bunch of wealth to themselves. Why? Because Jesus has concentrated so much in his teaching on telling us, look, it's not even enough to behave rightly outwardly. We've got to behave rightly inwardly. So part of the reason that we're uncomfortable with this parable is already because we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're taking the other things Scripture has said and bringing them to bear. But in this case, I think we can be helped just by reading a little bit further in the text. So if you if you go back in, start now, um, drop down to verse 14. Verse 14 says this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. Now that word justify, that in, in, just so that we're, we're clear, that's a, a make yourself look good. Make yourself appear righteous. So when we use it in the, in the very technical theological sense and we say to be justified, the main thing we're talking about there is us being able to stand before God as righteous. So if you're talking about justifying yourself before others, it would be making yourself seem righteous, making yourself look righteous. We do that kind of thing. Like, we are justified by Christ before God, but when we've done something wrong, we justify ourselves before others all the time. No, 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 you don't understand. Look, I was doing exactly the right thing. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So, this adds a little bit of information for us that I think makes this a little bit more interesting. So what are some of the things we get out of this part that, that uh, we've been told by Luke? The Pharisees got mad when they heard this parable. That's already kind of interesting on this idea that what it's teaching is, you know, wealth doesn't matter, just use it to make friends for the kingdom. Because it says the Pharisees loved money, and they would have been pretty happy to be told, yeah, as long as you're using your money to help the kingdom, it's all good, be as rich as you want to be. So that makes it a little unusual. Why would they be angry? And, and why does Luke say who were lovers of money except to connect them into this? So the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. You are those who justify yourselves before men. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And look at the second part, though, that it's called in. The law and the prophets were until John. And in 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So Luke thought it was important to tell us a few things. The Pharisees were mad. The Pharisees love money. And nothing will ever change in God's word. Nothing will ever be taken away. Now, if we add that in to this parable, 
I think we've actually got the tools to be able to come back and make it make a little more sense. Now, let, let me be clear. There's still going to be something weird. Because the whole scope of that parable is going to be missing something. And I think it's missing something in part because it's written. And if you think through the times that you've written an email before and you're trying to convey emotion and it isn't always there, there's a way in which the spoken word requires things. We're going to have to understand something as sarcastic. Something as tongue-in-cheek, something as um, hyperbole, something as not quite exactly what Jesus meant, because otherwise he's saying, rip people off, planning ahead for the future so that you can go to heaven, which we know he didn't say. So we're going to have something in there that's that way. But now let's go back and look at this. So let's ask a couple of questions. Who are these people? Who's the rich man? Who's the rich man here? There's a few rich men in Christ's parables. If you drop down in the same verse, the rich man is the unrighteous rich man who ignores Lazarus, who's at his doorstep. That rich man has wealth and looks privileged to everybody on the outside, but doesn't know the Lord and ends up suffering in hell. There's no indication that that's this rich man. But the other kind of rich men in the parables are the king, the righteous king. If you remember, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, so call it to mind now, There's the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? He goes before the king and he owes 10,000 talents, 10,000 talents. And just so that it does for us what it did for people then, a talent's about 66 pounds of gold. So he owned 10,000 of those. So what was being called to mind for people was he had an unimaginable debt. And the king forgave that debt. And you remember the unforgiving servant went out And then took people that owed him a couple of dollars and beat them and threw them in jail for not paying his debt. Right? So remember that unforgiving servant. But in that case, the rich man, the king, the the guy on a pedestal was God. He represented God himself. So what if the rich man is God? Well, who would be his managers? Now put yourself in the position of what we've heard about the text and what's going on there in this situation. The managers, those entrusted with the wealth of God, would be the religious leaders. God gave his word to his people and specifically entrusted it to the priests. The Pharisees, you'll remember, were a group of people and they were wealthy. They were powerful. But they were committed to telling people they had to really, really strictly fulfill God's law. So... You could make it the priests, I think given the context, you could identify it with the Pharisees. The managers would be those who had been given God's riches, the riches of his word, using the the language we have later about nothing passing away, and were not managing it well. Now that fits. That fits with Jesus' message overall. Well, what would it mean to not manage it well? Well, this is really, really clever. And this is where we're going to start to see how it plays out today. I'm given God's word. And especially when you think in the Old Testament context, one of the things that God's word does is give the law. And the law presents you with an understanding of your debt to God. Here's what you owe him. You owe him obedience. And when you fail to obey... We had the Old Testament sacrificial system where you came in every year and you paid off your debt. So what this would be, 
would be the Pharisees or the priests not teaching the whole truth in ways that made them more acceptable to the people around them. You know, I know God's Word says you owe Him perfect purity. But, you know, it's okay if you get divorces if you don't like your wife. In fact, divorce gets dropped in in a way that looks really arbitrary in this verse. And I suspect, in part, it was this kind of idea. The Pharisees were saying, oh, you don't like your wife? Just write her a little bit of divorce and send her away. That's pretty clear from other parts of Scripture. Oh, you know, you really have to obey the law perfectly. But then Jesus is coming to them and saying, what's wrong with you, you whitewashed tombs? Right, a whitewashed tomb, that's an ugly term. You're obeying the law outwardly and inwardly. You're just nasty and disgusting. You're, say, you're saying to your parents who you're supposed to take care of, I was going to take care of you, but instead I'm giving all of these gifts to the temple. You're saying you haven't murdered anyone, but in your heart you're full of anger. He's saying the manager, those entrusted with God's word, are selectively reducing what it really says so that the audience doesn't feel confronted as badly by it and they're profiting. We're going to come to this in just a moment to talk about churches today, but I think that would be the better way to understand those managers and what they're doing. And by the way, what were these debts like? They're big. So just to put it in scale, like that 10,000 talents, the scale on these, the, the 100 measures of oil, about 875 gallons. This is a big debt. A lot of money, especially, I mean, for us, we don't deal a whole lot in just gallons of oil. I mean, you don't, we don't measure our wealth, but if you had 875 gallons of oil, that's some wealth. Most people were living day to day to day at that point in time. The, um, the bushels of grain, uh, is about, a, are measures of grain, about 1,000 to 1,200 bushels. A bushel, I don't even, I had to look up what a bushel was. I sort of, I thought it was a regular old basket that you see apples in, but I wasn't 100%. That's about right size. So about a thousand of those little baskets that you could imagine walking through a orchard and putting apples in. It's a lot of grain. They cut the measure off of that. These guys owed the master a lot. And the managers wrote it down a lot. And they wrote it down a lot so that they could be taken care of because they were being replaced. And who was replacing them and what was being replaced? They were being replaced as the priests, as the measures of the intermediaries for the people, because Christ was coming and taking their position. He was the sacrifice, he was the debt, but he was also the priest and taking over that position of being in between. They were being replaced because Christ was coming, and he was taking the place that the people, his people, had not fulfilled in their life, in their management of God's word that had been given to them through Moses and before. So now, if that's what, and uh, I'll say if, this makes the most sense to me, but there's a lot of different opinions out there. If that's what this means, how then do we apply that today? Or how do we take this parable and make it mean something for us today? Because we don't really think of, if it was just about the Pharisees or just about the priests, then it doesn't really apply. We would just say, ha, 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 those Pharisees, they got replaced isn't it great? The church is established. Everything's better now. Let's go on. And we don't apply this to ourselves. But actually, that's, that's not at all going to work. Because the first one, if we apply it institutionally to the church, 
The first one is this. There are still places where most of the word is taught so that the churches will benefit. Imagine if we took some of the ways that, I mean, most of Christianity people are pretty happy with. Don't commit murder. Yeah, everybody's good. Let's all we can have. We can sit down together and be content with don't murder. As long as you're careful about when you say life begins and when it ends, we're all pretty good on murder. Don't steal. You know, uh, depending on <laughs> depending on how you feel about the politics of socialism, we're generally pretty good on don't steal. You know, if we actually do own it, and we ought to own it, we ought to be allowed to continue owning it. A lot of things we're pretty good on. <clears throat> but there's a few that society doesn't like. Now, what society doesn't like tends to change historically all the time. And if you watch the church for the last 2,000 years, so does the church. What we do is we do 90% Christianity. The 90% Christianity is all except for the parts that are socially distasteful. And then for a little while, you can blow your church up because you're teaching a kind of good news. You're teaching a kind of gospel. You're teaching almost everything that Scripture says. Notice they didn't write the debts off completely. They just wrote it down just a little bit in a way that made the debtor happy. And if I stand in this pulpit, and it's not my pulpit, so I just get to walk in and I don't get to teach the whole truth. But if Larry sat, if Larry stood in this pulpit and he just taught the parts of the gospel that he thought would make you the happiest and would make you invite the most people in and would make the most people walking in happy and would make them give and would make the church grow, there are churches that exemplify exactly that. The behavior of the manager being written off. The behavior of the manager being replaced. A person who takes the whole management and twists it to make themselves rich and in doing so ends up undermining the work of the rich man, of God himself, here on earth. Now, it's not just about the big church, though. It can be for us, too. See, each one of us, one of the things that we do say in the church today is that we are a priesthood of all believers. That rather than there being a separate class, like I'm, I've had more time in class to study things. And by the way, in case you ever feel like, oh gosh, I wish I had, if I don't have more time, I can't learn stuff. I looked at this over and over and over again and never paid any attention to it. So just because I got to go to school doesn't mean we get set into a higher position. But there is no, other than just training differences, we don't consider there to be any difference between me and you sitting here. I'm just the one who gets to talk right now. But that wouldn't have been true in the past. In the past, there was a real priestly class. And not all churches agree with that. It was one of the, it's one of the real significant pieces of the Protestant churches and the Reformation that there isn't a special class of people, even if there are some people who are called to do certain things, like teach. Otherwise, we're just members of the same church. So all of us are priests. All of us have been given the rights and responsibilities of being entrusted with God's riches. And what are God's riches in this parable? God's word. All of us are responsible to be learning it. All of us are responsible to be learning what part of it? All of it. Responsible to be not just learning it, but also applying it. See, for us individually, one of the things that this can refer to is the Christian life in which we selectively take those parts 
which work in our lives. And then we drop off those that can't. You'll hear examples of people talking about being in business and saying, well, I mean, I can't be completely honest in business. You just can't, you can't make any money that way. Yep. So if I just take that little bit out and I work, if I just write down the debt just a little bit, I'm not indebted to God for honesty, then I can be personally enriched in this world. Dead center application of what this parable is teaching. I take most of God's word, I apply that to my life, but I leave off those parts that, you know, you just can't do that. There's no way to exist in this world if you do that. I just, I mean, come on. How are you going to stay in business if you do that? And it's not just money, by the way. It's all the kinds of things we seek. How am I going to keep my friends if I do that? Or how am I going to get the attention that I want if I do that? Or how am I going to be loved the way I want if I do everything? Let me just apply most of it. Now... You, you may hear something that bothers you a little bit in that, though. Because that, that starts to sound like our debt to the whole law. If we do take it all seriously, we if you had only listened to that, we ought to do it all perfectly, and that's our job. And, and then you think about your life, and you go, I've failed over and over again to do that, and I know I'm going to fail tomorrow, and so this is hopeless. I am that manager, and I'm going to get replaced and forget the eternal dwellings that we forgot to talk about and we'll come back to in a minute. I'm hopeless. But see, that's where I brought up the unforgiving servant. Because one of the other ways that we can write down this debt is by failing to remember the full debt that we owe Christ because of what we have failed to do. The unforgiving servant owned 10,000 heavy chests of gold. What that should communicate is an impossible debt. And it's very tempting in our lives, especially when we hear messages about do more and do better. Do a little bit more. Do a lot more. To start to put that into our debt to the king category versus the the way we ought to be seeking to live here on earth. Because what we owe the king is not just a little bit more. What we owe the king is unimaginable riches. 10,000 heavy boxes of gold. It was intentionally chosen by Christ to say to you, there's no way. There's no way. You can't do it on your own. And by the way, all of us owe the 10,000 chests of gold. All of us can't do it on our own. Any of our relative differences in our capacities to do good or to look good don't matter in the face of that debt. And if we write it down and make it seem like we can do it, then we are being the irresponsible manager, the dishonest manager in our own hearts, and we're corrupting the gospel which says this. Yeah, we need to behave better. Jesus says to behave better. We need to encourage each other in righteousness because this is what we're called to here on this earth, but that is not how we stand righteous before God. The way we stand righteous before God is recognizing that all of that good work is nothing compared to our debt. But that Jesus, the man who replaced 
these unrighteous managers, the man who confronted them, the man who made them angry, the man who was ridiculed by them, was the Son of God, was the Son of the King to whom the 10,000 talents were owed, and he is the one who paid that debt. When we write down our debt, then we take those works which we're called to and which are good, but instead of making them gratitude to a king who've paid our debt, we make them our ways to show him, hey, listen, I'm good enough and don't really need you. But that's not who replaced the manager. The God who replaced the manager, the man who replaced these managers, took all of that for you. And as we said a few weeks ago, and I'm sure as Larry said before, even though it's the end of this sermon, it's the beginning of being able to hear hard news about what to do. If you know Christ, and if you have set your heart on Him, if you have faith in Him as your Redeemer, then the 10,000 talents have been paid for. And you can stand knowing that no matter how confronted you are with your own sin... God has made it right. You can be confident in His work, and so you can hear a hard word and try to do better, not so that you can get heaven, but because you're grateful your 10,000 talents have been paid. But, we should be grateful. So we ought to want to go do that. It's terrifying to hear it if we think we have to pay that debt. But once we know the debt's been paid, now we can go, where are the places I'm being a dishonest manager? We are set free to be able to dig. Listen, if it was up to us to find our debt, I don't want to dig into my sin. I don't want to find out where I'm messed up. I don't want to find out where I'm broken because it would just make me that much more terrified. Or make me have to lie to myself that much more and write down those 10,000 talents that represent the unimaginable debt. But once I know the unimaginable debt has been paid, then I can be strengthened to be able to go into my life and find those places where I am to myself doing what the Pharisees were doing to the world around them. I am writing down my debt to God so that I can benefit in ways that I want. And by the way, that will look different for all of us. Because all of us want different things. I mean, some of us it'll be money. Money's the obvious reference here. But it won't be that for all of us. All of us are doing this. I do this. You do it. I know you do. But understanding the gospel, understanding the truth that Christ on the cross took care of all of that allows us to be able to dig into it and to be honest with ourselves individually and as a group and grow together and encourage each other and actually love good behavior as a positive thing versus something that drives us deeper and deeper into debt and regret. So now, I I did say, there's this weird line about the eternal dwellings at the end. So if you notice, the way we're reading this, it does well with everything until the end. But here's the end. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. When we set aside God's truth in the gospel, when we set aside first that piece that says, Christ is the only answer. He's the only answer that can pay it all. When we write down that debt and make the gospel one of just do better and do better, Or when we 
write down the debt in ways that helps us to gather riches, whatever the forms of riches. Here's what I think that is saying. I think, if we're right about how we're reading this parable, what that's saying is, if you want to take God's word and write it down, and you want to build up riches here on earth by using most of God's word, by applying most of God's word, then do a good job of it. Make lots of friends with it so that when it fails and you die, they will receive you into their eternal dwellings. Now, what are the eternal dwellings of the world? They're not what you're seeking. Right? They're not what you're seeking. Now, that's not clear. And Jesus could have said it exactly that way. And so, while I think, and this is one of the really interesting things about trying to understand a parable, we could be wrong about this direct application, and yet everything that I think we have said is consistent with what else Scripture says and what the context here is. But Jesus could have made it a little more clear there at the end. But I, I, I think that's what it is. It says, look, if you want to just take some of this, and really this is Larry. Larry is going to stand and give you the word. And he is dedicated to teaching through. I, I can't believe the man asked me to teach out of James. Nobody teaches out of James. James is impossible to teach out of. This church is committed to teaching the whole word. But if you want to just have part of the word so that you can have more of what you want here on earth, I think what this final line is saying is do a good job of it. Enjoy the riches here and build good friends because those friends are the ones whose eternal dwellings you will get to be received into. And that it was sarcastic. Paul's sarcastic. Jesus is sarcastic. I don't know if he's sarcastic here, but it happens in Scripture. I love it because my mom used to hate sarcasm. It happens in the Bible, so it must be okay. (laughs) Whose eternal dwellings do you want to be received into? By whom do you want to be received into eternal dwellings? By the rich man who's given you his full word to be a manager of in this life? Or by those whose affections you've bought by unrighteous riches? I think that's how we're concluding. I think that's how we can apply this into our own lives, into the way as a church you hold Larry accountable to teaching the whole truth. As a church, you hold yourselves accountable to loving the whole truth because we are all the managers of the rich man's riches. And it is our obligation to manage all of them and not just the parts that will work to make us wealthy in all the ways the world promises wealth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, just be with us this week. Lord, anytime we hear a word that says do better, it can be terrifying to us, disheartening to us. I pray that as we had one of those words today, you would First, remind us all of the good news that our eternal debt to you has been taken care of in the cross. Lord, if there's anyone here that is still setting their faith in their own ability to pay their debts, that you'd work in their heart to say, that is not the way it works. I have done it all. Come to me and I will set you free.
But Lord, for all those who are here who are following you and who know that truth, that you would remind them of it so that we can hear hard words that encourage us to apply not just those parts of Scripture that we want to hear, but those parts of Scripture that we don't want to hear, that we would be willing to be encouraged and to encourage others to grow, that we can be more like you, each individually and as a body, and that the gospel can go out and that those who don't know you will hear it for the very first time and recognize people who've been set free by your good work and who are seeking to live godly lives before you in honor of that sacrifice and redemption. In your name we pray these things. Amen.